kind of uh, kind of think of this week. I've been reading a lot of our our Grand Island newspaper, and uh, I'm, I'm, it kind of saddens me. You know, it's been a number of months back that uh, this fellow says, "Hey, let's bring this um, whatever you want to call it." Why would they call something a gentleman's club? There's nothing gentleman about it, right? Bring it into Grand Island. And um, so I just think about that, and I think about it from the perspective of, of how God has built, you know, families. And, and men, you know, puts at the top of the family to, to lead spiritually. And, and you put something like that in a city. And what it gives us is it really gives us an opportunity to say no, not, not hey, we're going to, you know, come picket your place or anything, but no, we're going to be that voice of Jesus Christ that's bold in our world today. <clears throat> because there's so many guys, I think, that just get stuck in the junk of this world. And, um, and God says, just be that voice, my word, because there's a war going on, and it's a war that's going on for souls. We're going to see a little bit of that uh, this morning. We left off about halfway through uh, chapter 19 at um, this scene <clears throat> that is you got to get it in your mind because we're going to contrast two different suppers if you will uh, we're right we're right at the end of the revelation and so as we get get to chapter 19 what John is being shown are pictures of that that last moment in history where where Jesus is rising up and uh, really smashing his enemy and uh, and getting ready to um, initiate the resurrection. So at verse number six, we started this a couple of weeks ago. He hears <clears throat> what seems to be the voice of a loud multitude, uh, almost like that roaring of waters, the sound of many peals of thunder. And we talked about uh, some of the symbolism behind that. Um, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty uh, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Um, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And we're kind of getting that picture. Um, all along what Revelation has been taking us towards is this, this imagery of a marriage feast. And it's, it's fun when you get out your Bible, if, I, if, I, if, if you've never done this, it's fun to try it is just to trace through the Bible that thread that talks about our relationship with Jesus Christ in terms of a marriage. And you'll see it all throughout Old and New Testament. And I think the reason for that is, you know, here on earth, the most intimate relationships that we experience are our marriages, right? Um, I always tell people, you, you can have all kinds of relationships with people that are, are superficial, uh, you can get along with most people superficially. In fact, uh, even the people you don't get along with, you know, you kind of smile at and say, have a, have a nice day, jerk, right? You know, but, um, but in, in marriage, what God has done, and I think it's just brilliant, is he takes these two beings that, that are very different from each other, and he puts them in this little box called a house, and all of a sudden, you know, what we talk about, what we say we are, you know, as Christians, gets put to the absolute test, right? This is where you're going to grow. Marriage is designed to be that covenantal relationship uh, in which God takes two people. Those two people play a role in each other's lives. Uh, 
in preparing themselves for what? For the wedding. And this, this imagery then is, is really intentional to say when you, when you and I came into the world, we didn't know this, but we came in as creatures made by Jesus Christ for Jesus Christ. We were made for relationship, right? And uh, we will have an eternity, a very close, intimate, marriage-like relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, we, we will um, uh, uh, walk with him in a way that we have a hard time even understanding today. And so that's the picture that he's giving here is the marriage feast of the Lamb has been prepared. Now I want to do something because I think it's kind of cool. Uh, I want to pick out these words, and the bride has made herself ready. The bride has made herself ready. So I'm going to say just a couple of things about that. The first thing I'm going to say is I've done a lot of weddings in my life, a ton of weddings. Uh, at Messiah Lutheran, when, uh, when we served there, um, I, I think I would do probably 25 to 30 weddings a year, right? That means pretty much every weekend was, was a wedding for me throughout the course of a year. So I've seen a lot of brides get themselves ready for a wedding, okay? It's not pretty. All right. <laughs> I've had some really fun experiences. You know, you could write a book about your experiences. I, I have had some really fun experiences, you know, of, of knocking on that door. Don't come in, we're naked. Okay, I'm not coming in. I'm not going to come in there. I've had the, the mother of the bride come out and say, could you delay the wedding for just a little bit? I go, yeah, of course. I, said, I kissed my, my daughter just before we were getting ready to go out, and she got lipstick all over her dress, and we're trying to get off the door. Don't go. Just fine. It's fine, all right? I've had that scene. I actually have had that scene where uh, the, the bride is ready to come down the aisle. I mean, she is ready to come down the aisle. And uh, every, that, the organist is playing. Everybody's happy. And the guy comes out. And I said, are you ready? And he goes, no. <laughs> uh, no is not a good word right now. <laughs> this could have been a good word a few days ago. I literally had that. I went out to the organist and said, just keep playing and keep playing till I tell you to stop playing. She says, is there a problem? I went, a oh, big one. <laughs> that one came out, but it was something. So I've had a lot of this experience. The bride is getting herself ready for, for the, the marriage feast. Now I'm going to pick up these two words because I think they're important. Has made herself ready. Here, here's kind of an interesting thing. When you, look at, when you look at denominations and you look at systems of theology, there's a lot of theology out there in our world today that says um, to, one, to one extent or another that we, we, we make ourselves ready for the wedding, right? In other words, um, in, in, a, in just kind of a little synergistic way, evangelical America likes to say, you're saved by grace through faith. Yep, all that's true. But there's some things you need to do. You need to live this way. You make yourself ready for the wedding. And sometimes they'll point to a verse like this. The bride has made herself ready for the wedding. And I always go, whoop, time out. What actually does that mean? Where did she get her clothes? Right? She, she made them. She bought them. Oh no. And, and, and so what I want to do is I want to look with you at a, a kind of an interesting um, kind of reference that I think points us to what it means when you say the bride has made herself 
ready for the wedding. That, that, that helps us see that, this making yourself ready for the wedding. It's not what you're doing. It's not like the bride, the bride us. It's not like, well, we, we did all these good things, God. Now we're ready for you. No. God prepares us for that wedding. So turn over to Ezekiel and uh, find the 16th chapter. And look with me at, at what is probably one of my favorite Old Testament references to what it means to be made ready for the, for the wedding. All right, I'm just going to kind of go through this, some of it fairly quickly, but this is, a, this is a picture of how God gets his bride ready for the wedding, okay? Verse 16 our chapter 16, verse 1, Ezekiel says, Again, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem. Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite, and your mother a Hittite. Kind of confusing when you, when you first start reading this section, because... He's talking to Jerusalem, his people, his bride. And he's saying, your origin and birth are from the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite. Your mother was a Hittite. Well, here's what the prophet is actually saying. He's saying, <clears throat> who gave you birth, Jerusalem? I did. Okay. Why, why was Israel the chosen nation? Because of something they did? No. Simply because God said, of all the peoples on earth, I choose you to be my bride. Okay? What kind of a bride were they? Not so good one. Right? And so when you, when you look at the origins of, of Israel and Jerusalem, remember that they dwell in a Canaanite land. And they did what? They actually abandoned their belief in, in God and took on pagan idols, right? And so when he's saying, your origin and your birth are the land of the Canaanites, your father was an Amorite, your mother a Hittite, this is what he's saying. He's saying, you know what, you, you've been an adulterous bride, is what you've been. As for your birth, on the day that you were born, your cord was not cut. If you don't cut the cord, what happens to the baby? Death. Nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things out of compassion. But you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. Okay? I, it doesn't sound very good, does it? What kind of a bride is that? You know who it is? It's us. It's you and me. You know what Paul says the same thing? We're born in sin. And we're enemies of God. Who pities us? Well, keep reading. It says, when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you, in your blood live. I said to you, in your blood live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed you by again and I saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. Now here's the, here's the, the imagery I want you to see. 
I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. Who is it that makes you ready for the wedding? He does. Anything on Jerusalem's part? Nope, not a thing. You are saved by grace through faith alone. And this not of your own doing, but it is a work of what? Of God. I covered you with the corner of my garment. By the way, that would be an indication of what? Of a desire to marry. I place my garment over you. I'm calling you my own. That's how it would be done. Look at these next words. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you. One of the interesting things about, about the covenant that God makes with us is it's a one-way covenant. Okay? All the covenants that you'll ever in, enter into in this world, in your life, are what I call if-then covenants. If you do this, then you will receive this. Okay? There's only one covenant that you enter into that's not an if-then covenant. It's an even-if covenant. That's the covenant that God makes with you. He says, even if you turn away from me, even if you, you spit on me, even if you cry out, crucify him, even if you do all these things, I will pursue you. I desire to be your God. That's the kind of God that we follow. He says, then you became mine. And look at verse number nine, just beautiful, beautiful uh, imagery. Then I bathed you with water and I washed off your blood from you and I anointed you with oil. I made you my own. I clothed you with an embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen. I covered you with silk. Who is it that makes the bride ready? And I adorned you with ornaments. I put bracelets on your wrist. I put a chain on your neck. I put a ring on your nose. <clears throat> Those things kind of hurt when it gets cold. I've always thought about that. If you got that metal in your nose, which I mean, I don't object if people want to have that. That's fine. But if it gets cold, like in Nebraska, it's really cold. That thing freezes. And I'm always tempted just to go, bing, just to see what would happen. That's bad. I put earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. You, now, see, look at verse 13. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothing was fine and linen, your silk. And, okay, so here, here's the point of it. When you look at Ezekiel, who adorns the bride? God does, right? Go back over to the Revelation. See what he's saying? He's not saying, okay, in order for you to be saved or to be ready for the marriage feast, you got to go do these things to make yourself ready. That's not what he's saying. What's he saying? He says, I've given you the clothing. I've, I've put everything on you that you need. If you're clothed in my righteousness, then you are ready for the wedding feast. That's what makes us ready. Okay? Why, why are we, even in a, in living in America in a yicky time, able to say, but we know who we belong to. We know, we know who is in control. We know where this is going. We're getting ready for the wedding. He's making us ready. Why? Because that's his promise to us. So the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself. See? It was granted to her to clothe herself. We, we are clothed not with our own clothing, our works. We're clothed with the works of Jesus Christ himself. And notice how verse 8 picks that up. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Beautiful, beautiful language that's just pointing us 
that at the end of time, what we look forward to is this marriage feast uh, that we have with, with our God. Verse 9 says, The angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Have you been invited? Yeah. Matthew chapter 22. Just look at it. Matthew chapter 22. Have you been invited? Absolutely. Some of the parables that Jesus Christ used really make you stop and think. Who is it that gets us ready for this marriage feast? Have you been invited? Jesus one day was speaking and he was speaking in parables and part of the reason Jesus spoke in parables was to confound the wise. Those who thought themselves we're the wise ones. We have all the answers. We're confounded by the parables. This is one of my favorite parables but it makes you think. It says the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. He sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. That's always hit me kind of hard as a pastor because I think about, um, I'll tell you who I think about probably more than anyone else is, is um, over my years, the, the people that I've gotten to know who are, are broken, just broken. And, um, you know, a Sunday morning would come and, and you'd think, well, it's going to be a down Sunday. It's going to be a down Sunday. But here they would come. I'm thinking of one guy, come, he'd always come in, in his, he'd come in in his wheelchair because um, his, his whole body didn't work, but he could, he could drive that wheelchair. And here he'd come in there and I'd think, man, of all these able-bodied people, we have everything going for them. We don't need the Lord. We, we don't need him. We'll, we'll come when we can make it. I think, well, the wedding feast is a little bit like that. God has sent out his invitation to his people, and there, there's folks, yeah, yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll, get, yeah, we'll come. They, they didn't come, right? And uh, that always has just hit me that, that here's this feast, and, and the people that he did, I want you to come to my wedding. No, I'm not going to come. I don't need to come. So verse 4 says, Again, he sent other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, I've prepared my dinner. My, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. And, and God does this in our lives, repeatedly just pulling us, trying to pull, him, pull us towards himself. But look at it, it says, But they paid no attention. Why not? Why didn't they pay attention? They went off. One to his farm, another to his business. In fact, the rest went so far as to seize his servants, treating them shamefully and then killing them. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to the servants, the wedding feast is ready. But those invited were not worthy. In Greek, that word is axios, and it ties directly to what you're wearing. I'll show you. Watch. 
Go therefore to the main roads and invite the wedding feast, as many as you find. Go out then into the streets and find people that are hungry, right? Find the people that are broken. Find the people that, that, that say, you know what, I'm poor. I, I need God. I need help. Find those people. As many as you find. So they went out to the roads. They gathered those whom they found both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. When the king came to look at the guests, he saw a man who had no wedding garment. This is about what you're wearing. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. The king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. And in my Bible, those words are underlined multiple times and circled because they haunt me. They haunt me. Many are called and few are chosen. And I think about who, who, who is ready for the wedding feast. What's this parable about? Well, it's about the same thing that John is talking about. It's what he's seeing. He's seeing the wedding feast and he's seeing those, the bride that's been made ready. But, but how? By the God who clothed her. And in this parable, you see what's happening is this, this guest that comes in amongst all the other guests, he's not wearing the wedding garment. He's not covered right in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the point of the parable is, 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 is twofold. First of all, the people that God wants to invite are saying no. And we all have that opportunity. <clears throat> that opportunity. We can say no to God. We can say it in different ways. We can just flat out say no. Atheists do today. I'm not going to follow this Jesus. I don't need some Jesus Christ. I don't need a God telling me how to live, right? Or we can say, yes, no. That makes sense? Oh, yes, Lord, I'll follow you. But no, we don't, right? Not really. Or we come humbly before him, and that's the picture that you're getting in Revelation is we come as a people who, who know we need to be covered, cloaked, what? In the righteousness of Jesus Christ in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven and to be a part of the marriage feast. And that's the picture that he's giving John. He's saying, John, we're getting the wedding ready. And what I'm doing is I'm covering up my people with my righteousness. And I'm looking for those people in the streets and I'm looking for those people that are hungry and broken that come not proudly before me, but humbly before me, bowing down and saying, God, we need you. And I'm clothing them. I'm getting them ready for the feast. And so it's a, it's a strong call to the church to be about the business of what? Of clothing people with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so the angel then speaks back to John. And I love the words that he gives him. He says, write this down again. Behold, blessed are those, blessed are those who've been invited to this marriage feast of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. Okay. Now John, when he hears this, his Everything in him is just, is, I mean, I, I try, to, try to feel this, right? He has just moved to this place where he falls down on his face. See verse 10 where it says, And I fell down at his feet to worship him. He falls down on his face to worship the angel, right? That's just how moved he is, just pushed down to the ground. The angel cries out, and there's an explanation point here. Uh, that almost 
doesn't do justice to the, to the words. The angel is screaming. You must not do that, right? Why? Because he says, I am a sundulas. I am a fellow slave uh, with you. Um, I am purchased by God. I am owned by God. We are the same as one another. I an angel, you a man, both of us, fellow slaves together with God to do his work. And then um, he says, I am a slave with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. And then he says, it, just worship God, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And so he's raising John back up saying, no, this, this, I, I'm not telling you this to have you worship me, but to have you worship the God who is at work clothing his bride. So I want you to keep this in mind. This is one beautiful picture of a marriage feast, right? A supper. In our, in our lives today, we get a little taste of that when we come before God and worship and we receive his words and we're clothed with his righteousness through his word and we come to the table of the Lord and we sing, this is the feast of victory for our God. Hallelujah. That's what we're talking about. This is the feast. It's our foretaste of the feast to come, right? That's us today. We're going to contrast that with a different kind of feast that's going to take place here in this next section of the Revelation. Two feasts contrasted with one another. This is a beautiful one. The, the, the second one, not so beautiful. It starts with a white horse. You guys remember the white horse? Okay, this is a different one. Look at verse 11. It says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. Now, the last time we saw a white horse was in... Um, Chapter 6, the first two verses, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and all four of those horsemen are what? They're from hell. Okay? And I've, I've always maintained, still maintained to this day, that the most dangerous of all four horses is the white one because he looks like the good guy. Okay? Um, you know, it's, it's the, uh, we had a ch children's sermon where, you know, you're comparing these, these, uh, these two snakes with each other and they look, Virtually the same, right? And one will kill you and one actually is not so bad. <clears throat> this white horse is bad. It will kill you. Okay? That's the white horse of false religion. This writing. Now, at the end of the revelation, you get to see the white horse. I.e., Jesus Christ and his troops. And uh, here they now come riding. Why? Because we're at the end. And that that false white horse is going to get taken down, destroyed by this white horse. Okay, so look at look at the way it describes. I saw heaven opened, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges. In righteousness he judges and he makes war. And I think a little bit about this: um, how how God makes war for us. The one riding this white horse makes war on our behalf. Do you, do you remember a little while back 
we looked at in Revelation chapter 12 at this, this kind of cosmic scene of the birth of Jesus Christ. And what we saw is that when, when Jesus Christ was being born, this great red dragon, remember, chose to, to find a way to, to kill the baby when the baby came. And it kind of took us back in history to that period of, of Jesus' birth and Herod the king being manipulated in such a way that he, he actually puts out a death order on the male children in, that, that are being born in that region. Okay, remember, remember these words. It says, when the dragon saw that he was not able to devour the child, he, the dragon, went off to make, <clears throat> excuse me, war with the offspring of the child. So the picture Revelation chapter 12 gave us was that right now there is a war going on for your souls and that war is very real and it's very spiritual. So you have literally demons from hell, fallen angels that follow Lucifer who desire to separate you from Jesus Christ. Okay, They're making war against you. This is a picture of of who is warring for you, right? And his name is Jesus Christ. He says, I will fight this fight for you. Okay? I've always liked the words of John in chapter 4 in the fourth verse. Remember, 1 John, John says this. He says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. In other words, the one that is fighting for you is greater than the one that is fighting against you, but it's still a fight, okay? How does that fight manifest itself in our lives? Well, sometimes in very obvious ways, very obvious ways, okay? Satanic possession. When you see it, it will, it will scare you to death, really, um, where, where a demon literally has entered into a person and possessed their personality. And when you, when you fight that battle, you come in the name of Jesus Christ. And I always, I always remember and respect the words of, of, of one of my mentor teachers who said, Luke, if you go in, when you go into that battle, do, do not go in any way, shape, or form in your own strength. Don't go alone. And so in times where I've had to, to work with people that I believe are possessed, satanically possessed, it's let's come and let's fight this battle and let's do it in a way that recognizes that Jesus is greater than the one who is in this, this person. Okay, a, a, a person that's possessed does not have faith. They're outside of faith, right? And so, so you have the battle is, is both the removal of the demon and then calling that person to what? To faith in Jesus Christ, the one who is greater. Probably in my life, what I've had to face even more so is what I'm going to call satanic oppression. All right? Satanic oppression happens to people like us, Christians, where a demon watches you and finds where, where, where are your weak spots. And when, you, when you're at your most desperate times in life, that demon will come against you in a supernatural way and, and, and it can be absolutely terrifying, okay? So I'll just describe this to you. Very real scene for me is, is to walk into a room where a person is under oppression. 
And to have that person say, say to you, Satan says that you are very good at what you do. This is my response. I do nothing. I have no power, no strength. But I come under the authority of Jesus Christ. Everything done is under his authority. He has authority over you. And he commands you to release this person. Now, now we're talking about satanic oppression. And I will tell you that to walk in that room, literally for me, is to walk in that room and feel chills run up my spine. And there's no question in my mind. Satanic presence? Absolutely. Okay. Over the course of my, my ministry, I've had people laugh at me. I've had people say to me, well, that's just crazy stuff talking about demons like that. But I have unquestionably had those battles multiple times with people and have, have ended up uh, watching God release oppression from folks. Those cases where this war is being fought, I think of this white horse. And I think of, of Jesus Christ who fights for us and know that he's greater than the one that we come against. Most, most of what happens in our lives isn't that obvious. It happens, it happens in, in ways that are more hidden. But nonetheless, just as real. And any person who tries to live a single day of their life and doesn't think that they're under warfare is just living foolishly. Just living foolishly. Because every single day is a day of battle for your mind, for your thoughts, for your words, for what your actions are. And that's why, that's why Paul says, when you get up in the morning, get dressed for battle. Put on the armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate. That she, that she put it all on because you're in a war all out. Think about that for our kids. We would never send our kids out into, you know, a winter day, you know, wearing, you know, shorts and, and, and slippers. We'd be like, no, get dressed to go out on that. Send our kids out fully, fully ready to face the enemy. And, uh, and that means a, a, a prayer covering every day because every day this battle is true. And that's, that's really the picture that John has given here is, is, is this, this marriage feast is being prepared, but guess what? Until that day comes, this battle is ensuing, this war is going on. Thank God you have this white horse who is riding for you, who is greater than the one that is in this world. Verse 12 says, His eyes are like flames of fire, and on his heads are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. Um, you know, it's kind of interesting when, when, um, when Moses, you know, asks God, what is your name? The response is what? I am. I am, right? That's my name, I am. Well, yeah, we call him Jesus, the earthly name that's given to him. Right? I mean, why do we call him Jesus? Well, I mean, his, his name points to what he does. He is the saving one, Right? But his name is, 
I am, right? Um, and so no one knows his name but himself, right? He, he would just say, yeah, I just signed, I, what's that little visa card? I am, right? <laughs> there you go. Um, I'm just going to read this verse, and then we'll come back to it because it's, it's rich. It says, he, he, he is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and by the name Oh, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. This is what we call him. Jesus, the Word of God. Kind of tying back, John is writing this, tying back to the very opening words in his gospel. Uh, the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Um, I want to come back to that clothed in, in rose, but let me, let me close off with verse 14 and then we'll finish it up. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white, Pure were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a two comes a two-edged sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. I want to come back through some of that that language, but let me leave you with this this image in your mind so you know who fights for you. Anybody ever remember this movie, Crocodile Dundee? You've never seen it before? You gotta you Netflix it or however you get movies. Crocodile Dundee, favorite scene in the whole movie, right? Is where these these thugs are gonna rob them, and they pull out a little knife, and they're like, "Give us your money!" And he pulls out a knife. Remember that? And he goes, "You call that a knife, right?" This white horse says to the other white horse, "You call that a horse, right?" And here he comes with a sharp two-edged sword with which to do battle. Keep Grand Island in your prayers this week. Um, you know, uh, a judge just dismissed a lawsuit against three of our churches here. I'm thankful for that. Uh, the promise is, well, we, this guy says he's going to refile his lawsuit on Monday. Keep Grand Island in your prayers. And um, I would even suggest pray for that person because he is so lost and trying to drag people down. There is a war that's going on, and it's pretty evident. Let's pray.